Hello? Hey, Rich, it's Larson. You got a minute? Sure, Larson. What's up? Hello and welcome. This is Larson Hicks. Welcome to the Got a Minute podcast. I'm here joined by my uh, co-conspirator, Pastor Rich Lusk. How are you today, sir? I'm good. How are you doing, Larson? Fantastic. It's good to see you. It's always good to talk to you. I'm glad you got a minute today to chat. Um, So you've been on a kick here at Trinity um, Prez down in Birmingham, the church where you're a pastor, uh, talking about wealth. And uh, I'm sure that's kicking up. That's a, that's a spicy topic, man, especially in, uh, you know, I don't know, Birmingham, I feel like, is is kind of uh, known to be a, a place where you've got some really, really wealthy people, and, and you've got some disparity, you know, there. You've got kind of the income inequality that uh, is such a, such a big problem, uh, according to uh, the powers that be today. Um, and, uh, you know, we all know that Jesus said we're all supposed to be poor. So, uh, you gotta, you gotta figure out, you gotta dig yourself out of a hole here, sir. Uh, if you're going to start trying to say that, 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 uh, it sounds like you're, you're almost saying that wealth is a good thing. That can't be true. Um, so what do you, what's going on here? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, obviously we do want to, uh, alleviate poverty as much as we can, you know, anywhere we can, no question about that. Uh, I don't think that means eliminating uh, income or wealth inequality. That'd be a different kind of goal uh, and not one that I think Scripture really holds out for us. But yeah, so I, one thing that I've tried to address in my sermons, uh, and I've, I've tried to, uh, one of the things I said in the first sermon I preached is how difficult it is to, uh, to preach what you might call a, a balanced sermon uh, on wealth, and and really, it's because what the Bible ha- the Bible has so much to say about wealth. It's actually a very complicated topic. If you're looking for simple answers, you're not going to get them from Jesus or from the Apostle Paul or from Moses or Solomon. You know those those figures in the Scripture who have the most to say about wealth. It's just right. uh, it's just more complicated than that. And the Bible's teaching is full of paradoxes, or at least. Uh, tension points, things that we have to hold in tension. So we're not going to try to capture all of that in today's blog post. I would say if somebody wants a more comprehensive and, and maybe balanced approach to wealth and to care for the poor and all of that, I would say go listen to those sermons. I've done a, a blog post with probably another one on the way uh, that deals with some of these things too. But I want to really focus in on one thing in particular. One of the, one of the, one of the statements I made in uh, the last sermon I preached uh, is that uh, the world needs more Christian billionaires. And I could tell afterwards that that struck a nerve with some people, I think in a good way. But <laughs> the world needs more Christian billionaires. I'm not saying there aren't any Christian billionaires out there. I'm sure that there, sure. there are some. Uh, and probably many who would claim to be Christian, but we would not necessarily recognize as Christian. But uh, why, why do I say that? I want to start off talking first about why there is a tendency to demonize wealth uh, in the culture yeah. at large and even in the church. Uh, and then we'll kind of go from there. Some of this, of course, some of the demonizing of the ultra-rich is no doubt brought on by envy. And I think we have to admit right up front that there are, there are different ways that people get rich. Some people get rich because uh, they have figured out how to game the system. Some people get rich because they really are uh, part of an oppressive regime. But in a market economy, and I'm not saying we have a true market economy in the U.S. right now. In a lot of ways, we don't. And some of the people who've been most successful that are sort of household names, 
uh, when it comes to wealthy people in our country today. No doubt they did uh, learn, you know, use the, the, the government. Uh, there's as much cronyism going on as there is uh, market success. So I, I don't right. want to necessarily hold any of those figures up as examples of what I'm talking about when I say we need more Christian billionaires. But I right. want to talk about the, 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 the demonizing of the ultra wealthy and, and why that is not something that we should just automatically jump on board with. I, I think one of the keys is to understand how wealth is created. Mm-hmm. So if you ask that question, how is wealth created? Well, the, the, the people who have become billionaires in our culture usually have done so for two reasons. One, they were innovative and creative. They took a risk and, and sought to create a, a company or a product that consumers, that buyers would find value in. That, that's part of it. But mm-hmm. what really brings you into that billionaire category is when you not only have consumers who want your product, but when you get investors, you have to have obviously investors on the front end, generally speaking. But when you get investors on a really wide scale to to uh, to believe in your business and to want to put their money in it. So one thing I would say is that the reason a lot of people become fabulously wealthy is because they not only does their wealth obviously improve their own lives, but they're improving a lot of other people's lives as well. They're producing right. products or goods or services in some way that, that other people want. They want to invest in them and they want to buy them for themselves. And that's how they become successful. So, uh, you know, I would say if you don't want Jeff Bezos to be a billionaire, uh, stop using Amazon. But that's easier right. said than done. Most of us would, you know, even, even if we think that there are certain problems that come with a company like Amazon, and that's something we might take up in a future podcast. Sure. Most of us would say that there are certain things about Amazon that we appreciate, like the convenience and, and the amazing you know, selection of different kinds of products that, uh, that, it, that, it, that it provides for us. Uh, there are all kinds of things about Amazon that you could say do make life better for a lot of people. And so it's as if it's, you know, Jeff Bezos has not gotten rich at everybody else's expense, but he's created right. thousands upon thousands of jobs in doing this. He's uh, created a lot of wealth for his investors uh, who believed in his business early on. If you were an early investor in Amazon, you probably have done, you know, you're probably watching this video from your yacht in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so uh, it's, you know, nobody becomes a billionaire, generally speaking. Again, yeah. there's all kinds of exceptions to this and, and all that. But in a market economy, even in a quasi-market economy, you generally don't get that level of wealth unless you are producing something people want, something of value. Yeah. And, and you have investors who really believe in what you're doing. So that, that's the first thing I think to really grasp is to understand how wealth is created. Right. Uh, that, that wealth uh, being cre- wealth is generally created because not just the, the person who's becoming really wealthy is now living a better life, but the rest of us are benefiting in some way. So you might even, you might say, yeah, sure, we we in some way have propped up Jeff Bezos' wealth. Uh, but on the other hand, you might say a lot of these billionaires, they serve us by the goods and services they provide. They make our lives better. We all right. benefit. I think we'd all, you know, again, we can point out the downsides to a lot of, say, these technologies and whatnot. But I think we all benefit from having a smartphone because the smartphone sure. puts more wealth in our pockets, a, a resource that people in previous generations could not even imagine. If you have a, a smartphone, you have access to all the information and all the libraries in the world, something that, you know, in past ages, people could not have even dreamed of. Yeah. There's a very real sense in which that is wealth and makes us wealthier uh, than even the, 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 the top of the top 
right. in, you know, say ancient times. So again, a lot of it is understanding what wealth is and how wealth is created. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I, I think biblically speaking, you know, the, the, one of the ways I, I talk about this when I, when I have this conversation is this idea that, that acquiring wealth typically requires virtue that you, you, you actually have to have you starting a business, running a business, convincing investors to give you money, um, you know, managing people, making sound financial choices, you know, all of these things are, you know, uh, it, you're not going to become a billionaire typically if you take millions of dollars from investors and then go turn around and blow it on drugs and prostitutes and sports cars. And, you know, I mean, usually that's going to, you're, you're that catches up with you pretty quick. Most that catches up with you pretty quick. Right. Um, so, and, and investors are wise people typically who have, have acquired their wealth, um, because of their stewardship, you know, faithful stewardship. And so they're looking to, uh, invest in, in, uh, people that have virtue. So, so I do yeah, think so, so. I would agree with you on that. Yeah, you, I think you're exactly right. I think it, you at least have to mimic virtue uh, generally in order to be very right. successful. It doesn't mean you have to be a Christian, though obviously that helps. And that's that's what I ultimately want to get at is why we need more Christian billionaires. We'll come right. back to that in a minute. But, you know, uh, we, we've seen the demonizing of the billionaire. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has made a big deal out of this, that billionaires should not exist. Right. And I think that's a really absurd claim. I mean, that's basically saying that Jeff Bezos should not exist or that Amazon should not exist or that Apple should not exist or that Walmart should not exist. And I, and I get it. I mean, again, there are problems with all of those corporations and we can talk about what they do to local economies and mom and pop shops and all that right. kind of thing. But the fact is the majority of people obviously have spoken with their wallets and believe that those companies provide really right. good products. And of course, right. you couldn't have a lot of these technologies uh, the small a small business could not produce an iPhone, certainly not at a reasonable cost. It takes a takes a large corporation to provide the kind of technology that we're using here today, our computers and whatnot. So, totally. uh, so I, I think I think we you know another statement that Alexandria Ocasio Cortez said is that you know billionaires need workers more than workers need billionaires because you know yeah. her whole idea is that if you become a billionaire, you did so by exploiting the worker. Well, my question would be if these workers weren't working, you know, say your typical Amazon employee, if they're not working for Amazon, who are they going to be working for? You know, there's right. a good chance they're working for some other billionaire, you know, right. uh, because again, uh, what billionaires don't just create wealth for themselves uh, in, in a, in a, in a healthy functioning uh, market economy, they create wealth for a lot of other people too. Maybe not to the same degree, but they create thousands upon thousands of jobs. Right. Uh, and, and that is, I think, actually better than any kind of, you know, if you want to ask, how do you help Poor people, what, what what poor people need more than anything else, certainly more than just uh, handouts. You know, you could you could hand money out to poor people, but then when you run out of money, uh, and they run out of the money you gave them, then they're right. still poor. If they're ever right. going to rise above their poverty in a more permanent kind of way, it's going to be because they get jobs and they get skills to perform in those jobs. And so then you have to ask, well, where do jobs come from? Well, jobs come from wealthy people who. Uh, who use their money to build a business, right. uh, and that business creates jobs. Um, I remember my dad saying, "This is one of those, you know, dad sayings you pick up and, and remember. Uh, you will never work for a poor person." Mm. And that's right. I mean, if, you know, if you're going to demonize the rich, you're probably biting the hand that feeds you in a lot of ways. 
so that that's you know that's something we have to keep in mind. And again, I'm not saying that all wealth is gained in a righteous way. That's certainly not the case. But a lot of people who become very wealthy are doing so because they have created uh, products that people want, and they have uh, cast a vision for a business that investors want to be a part of, and that's why they become so wealthy. So right. the idea that uh, that the billionaires shouldn't exist. I think that that's a problem. Uh, right. I think that's, that's that just doesn't understand how wealth is actually created. Totally. Well, it's and 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 you you point you alluded to this. You know, um, I, I've I've listened to a lot of I'm I'm one my my favorite podcast probably of all time. If you were to judge my favorite by the one that I've listened to for the longest and probably listened to the most episodes is um, is Econ Talk with. Um, with uh, Russ Roberts, uh, he's now at Shalem. He's now the president of Shalem College in Jerusalem. But he, he was in a, he was at Stanford for a long time, and and he has a different author on his show every week. And I've heard, I don't know how many episodes where he's had economists, um, statisticians, um, you know, various thinkers come in and talk about big problems like poverty, like you know infant mortality, um, or, or just, you know, death rates in general, birth rates, uh, you know, overpopulation, underpopulation, global warming, all of that stuff. And, and it seems like the thread for people who are actually honest about the data, um, even with something like global warming, you know, if you're, if you're actually concerned about global warming, the best thing you can do is, 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 um, encourage, uh, wealth, encourage prosperity, encourage economic activity. Um, all, um, virtually all of the, all of the, um, measures of, of human, um, you know, flourishing, uh, across all, all, um, basically all data points, uh, point back to economic growth. Um, and, and I know as a Christian, uh, you Christians hear me saying that, and, and especially those who are kind of, um, swayed or, or compelled by the poverty gospel kind of mindset, hear that as just a, a sacrilege because because I'm I'm now baptizing economic prosperity and and saying well well that's the same as Christianity and, and really it's Christianity that that uh, that is going to make the world a better place um, and, and I and I think I, I would say yes to both I mean I, I would say that that Christianity the application of 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 biblical wisdom produces wealth, um, and wherever the gospel is gone, and even wherever um, you know Old, Old Testament Christian, you know Old Testament believers have gone, t- typically you see wealth, you see you see economic prosperity. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, you know the Bible is full of um, the the problem with the prosperity gospel is that it expects a one to one relationship between our faith or our obedience and prosperity. And obviously, the world's more complicated than that. You can have right. righteous people who are wealthy, and you can have righteous people who are, who, who, who or you can have righteous people who are poor. Uh, you right. can have wicked people who are wealthy and wicked people who are poor. Uh, the Bible right. certainly acknowledges that. But there's a lot in scripture that, again, shows us there's kind of a positive feedback when you live according to God's design. And this has got to be true, not just at an individual level, but at a social level for it to really pay off uh, you know, in a significant way. But when you, when you live according to God's design and your society is structured according to God's design, there's this positive feedback that comes over time 
where the righteous will accumulate more and more wealth. Proverbs says even the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. Deuteronomy 28 talks in terms of blessings and curses, blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And those blessings do in, include great wealth. There's nothing, the Bible has no embarrassment at all when it comes to, uh, to wealth. Uh, the Bible sees wealth as good, as part of God's good creation. This, this is one of those places where it's so important to start with Genesis 1 and not Genesis 3. Because if you start with Genesis 3, then everything's going to be tainted by the fall. Uh, and so wealth is always, you're going to always, you're going to be very suspicious about wealth. Right. If you start with Genesis 1, uh, you say, you know, well, in the, in, in the beginning, God created a world full of wealth. We're, we're reading about gold and other precious metals and stones in Genesis chapter two. And the dominion mandate that God gave to man obviously means that man is to go out and to uh, develop the, the raw materials that God has embedded in the earth. All of that that uh, potential wealth, I'll say, that, right. that is in the creation in the beginning and turn that into actual wealth by converting those raw materials into a God-glorifying civilization, that that's ultimately the goal. And so that, yeah, that, that's, that's another whole aspect to this. And you talked about, uh, you know, things like climate change and whatnot. And the answer is, uh, you know, obviously is, you know, if wealthy people can handle climate change a lot better than poor people. That's exactly right. Whatever kind of climate change is going on, which that's probably another podcast we need to get into. But a lot of our wealth today is actually tied to fossil fuels at this stage in history. And so actually, I, I am a believer uh, that if there is some kind of climate catastrophe, which I think it's, I think the fears of this are overblown, but if there is some kind of climate catastrophe uh, out there in our future, I think that the answer is not trying to mitigate uh, the, the the causes of climate change, because I think a lot of those are out of human control. But even if they are, even if there is a major human cause, I think a much better solution is simply to adapt to it, which fossil fuels give us the, the, the power and ability to do. Humans are much better at adaptation than mitigation on something like this. So let's just adapt and do what we need to do to deal with whatever's coming. But right. getting back to our whole, you know, why do we need more Christian billionaires? One other, one other obstacle I want to clear out of the way, and you started to allude to this, Larson, uh, one other obstacle I think we need to get out of the way is the teaching of Jesus on wealth. Because we're people who want to um, go in a poverty gospel direction, and I think that's really kind of what it is, the idea that Christians ought to live a life of the bare necessities, the bare essentials. Christians ought to pare down and live a, a simple life. You know, Jesus is sort of the original Marie Kondo. Isn't that her name that calls people to yeah. give everything away except like what you absolutely have to have? Uh, you know, that, that, that whole view of wealth and basically people then end up, of course, feeling guilty because they don't do it <laughs> generally. Yeah. So they end up still feeling guilty. Uh, and I, I, you know, I always ask the question, I'm like, all right, so what do you th set your thermostat at? Okay. Let's say you set it at 75, you know, you could have set it at 77 and saved a little more money to give away, or you could, you know, you could not have a thermostat at all. And then, you know, you have even more money to give away. But people usually don't think in those terms. They, they think, oh, well, some kind of air conditioning is a necessity. No, it's actually not. So you can always go further than this, which means you're always going to feel guilty for what you have when you take that approach. And I don't think that's the approach to wealth that Jesus takes. Some people will point to places where Jesus says, uh, you know, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. 
Uh, and so any earthly treasure we hang on to, then they think is tainted or they feel guilty about because I always could have given away more. I could have converted more of my earthly treasure to my heavenly treasure. Now, in some cases, that's true. And I'm not saying nobody should ever feel guilty about how they spend money. Certainly there are ways to spend money that are foolish uh, or that are selfish. You know, there, it's possible to be greedy and uh, get yourself into you know, a deep, deep sin that way. Uh, so, so there are real dangers here. The, the Bible gives lots of warnings about wealth for this reason. But I would argue that Jesus does not teach a poverty gospel. Uh, you could just as easily argue that Jesus teaches a prosperity gospel. In Matthew chapter 6, that same context where Jesus talks about laying up heavenly treasure, he says, if you seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added unto you. Okay, well, what are all those things will be added to you? All the things that the pagans are running after, food, shelter, clothing, all of that. Uh, so Jesus right. is, is, he says, all these things will be added unto you if you seek first his kingdom. Well, it sounds like seeking first the kingdom is a way to attain great wealth and prosperity. And that brings us right back to Proverbs and Deuteronomy 28, and it puts Jesus in line with other passages of scripture that seem to connect, as you said, Larson, virtue with prosperity in some kind of way. I think the, you know, so people have asked, well, okay, so what does Jesus really teach about wealth? I think one of the keys, uh, there's there's a book that has come out recently that's gotten a lot of attention, and I think it's 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 very worthy of that attention. It's yeah. Jerry Bowyer's book, uh, Makers versus Takers. I think you've got your copy of it there, Larson. It's an it's an excellent book. Yeah, the Maker versus the Takers. Uh, so it, it's a really really good book, and I think what it what it does that is so insightful that I had never thought about before is that uh, Bowyer admits, yes, Jesus did warn about wealth, but only when he was speaking to a certain class of people in a certain location. All of his warnings about wealth are uh, basically concentrated in the region of Judea because that is where the people who are, you could say, the takers are located. People who basically uh, make their living by extracting wealth from right. the working class and the business class. So these are people who are getting wealth by extracting it from other people. They don't really produce things, but they do the power of taxation. And, and this is, of course, so tax collectors, but also people who are connected with the temple system, which could impose taxes yeah. upon the people. That's how they're getting so wealthy. When Jesus is out in Galilee and the people in Galilee, the people where Jesus grew up were basically middle to upper middle class. The people that Jesus called to be his disciples were generally middle class to upper middle class. I mean, it's obvious that Zebedee has got a, a, a prosperous fishing business that several of Jesus' apostles come from. Uh, Jesus himself grew up as a carpenter, which the best historical research, and Bauer, Bauer goes into this, the best historical research suggests that Jesus would have been probably middle class to upper middle class based on a, what a carpenter would, you know, what, what the life of a typical uh, carpenter would have been like in those days. Uh, certainly not poor, not impoverished. Uh, if you were a carpenter, you had certain skills that were very employable uh, in that yep. time and place. You could have done pretty well for your, your, yourself. But that ruling class, that political class that makes their wealth by extracting it from other people, that, that gains wealth by extracting it from those who are uh, working in small businesses and so forth, those are the people that Jesus attacks because it is so easy for them to abuse other people and take you know, basically uh, more than, than they should. So think about a tax collector like Zacchaeus. Right. Okay, The way the tax system worked, basically the tax collector had the Roman army 
to back up whatever he wanted to do. He's got, got a monopoly on extracting wealth from people in this way. And if you argue with him, well, you might have Roman soldiers showing up at your house the next day and, you know, be ashamed for you to lose this, you know, fine little house you've got here or what have you. Uh, so it, it was a very corrupt system. And of course, the tax collectors were notorious for taking far more than what they need, what they were required by Rome to gather. And then they would just pocket the difference. And so right. they weren't producing anything of value. They had gotten into these positions that then they could use to abuse other people. And that's what they were very often doing. So when Zacchaeus is confronted by Jesus, yes, a lot of his wealth is ill-gotten gain. Mm -hmm. that he needs to give back. And that's what he pledges right. himself to do. Or think about the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. We could call him the rich young senator, the rich young congressman. That's really what he is. Uh, he, is he's, he is wealthy uh, because he's part of this aristocratic ruling class that uh, takes wealth rather than makes wealth. Now, I think there are other reasons why Jesus calls him to give away all his wealth. Part of it is, I think sure. this is obviously an idol for him. Uh, and that's why he can't let go of it. There's also the fact that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the uh, climactic moment in his ministry when he will lay down his life on the cross. And anybody who's going to follow Jesus in that moment is going to have to leave everything behind. There's some, there's yeah. some unique historical circumstances there that would not apply to all disciples of Jesus in all times and places. Obviously, there were many disciples of Jesus who had wealth. But, it, but Bowyer makes the point, I think it's very interesting, that all of the warnings that Jesus gives about wealth are directed against Judeans who are the takers in that economic system. When he is right. around in Galilee, he never says a negative word about wealth because most of the people there, I'm not saying there was no corruption, but most of the people there who are gaining wealth, and of course many of them were quite prosperous, are doing so by being makers, by providing a service, by providing something of value to people. And Jesus has no problem with wealth that, that, that is gotten in that kind of way. Yeah. The, the book was fantastic, and, and, and I, I will confess, I went into the book with a lot of skepticism. I went in to the book thinking, here's another capitalist who wants to, who wants to try to twist Scripture into making his, you know, supporting his position. And I, I say that um, I, I know Jerry personally, and I know he's not that kind of guy. And so I, I, I didn't really think that, but I was... I was um, I was I was suspicious, you know, that the arguments were going to be, they were going to be soft. And and what I found, what I was delighted to find in his book was, this was a work of of incredible scholarship um, cool. and, and exegesis. Um, and and the thing that the the kind of tantalizing thing that I, I when when people when I tell people about this book to think about is, imagine if in the Gospels it said, and then Jesus went to Wall Street. And then Jesus went to Washington, D.C. Um, if that was like, there's all these throwaway verses where it says, and then Jesus went up into Jerusalem, or then Jesus went down into Galilee. And we just sort of um, skim right past that to get to the good part where he gives, where he talks. Um, but imagine if you replace those words with, he went to Las Vegas, or he went to Silicon Valley, or he went to, you know, all of a sudden you go, oh, pl the place actually sets the whole place stage matters. right for the for the for the 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 talk he's going to give. Those um, places have certain associations, right, right, and he and he really and he really makes that clear, um, and uh, and 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 he you know he typifies, I think you know the the he he does a great job of explaining 
Jesus's anger at the, um, you know, at the temple when he overturns the tables, um, and how that's, that, that's basically people doing exactly, you know, what we're talking about, you, you know, using the, the, um, the church and the influence that they have from within the church or within, you know, God's people to extort, uh, more money out of poor people. Um, and then he talks about how Judas, you know, really is the perfect example of of what we're what Jesus is speaking against. Uh, that Judas Judas is this Judean uh, Jerusalem elite who talks piously and says things like, you, know, "You shouldn't waste that that perfume on Jesus. We could sell it and give to the poor." So he he knows how to say the pious things, even economic you know, piety. Um, but, but when it comes to it, he really, um, cares a lot about, uh, the money box and, and, right, uh, right. Controlling it. yeah. So if I remember right, and I don't know if this is in the book or something I heard him say elsewhere, cause I've, I've, I've followed up and followed Jerry's work, uh, cause yeah. I enjoyed the book so much, but Judas Iscariot ish is That's the right. Hebrew word for man. And Kiriat, I believe is a city that is in Judea. So he's a man of Judea. He's a Judean. Right. So he That's comes right. from that, uh, from that region where the, where the government bureaucrats would live. And so, uh, and so he's kind of like a government bureaucrat. He wants to hold the poor box. And then of course right. he helps himself to it. So he's actually skimming, uh, you know, from those, that, from that money that's been brought in to help the poor, which is exactly what you see happening a lot of times in our, in our system as well. So the Judas economy is a good way of, of understanding what's happening there, as, as he calls it. The Judas economy is a good way of really, I think, understanding a lot of what's going on in our day, because uh, we have a very similar dynamic at work. So, right. yeah, so, so, so it's really, really fascinating to think about this. When Jesus is out in Galilee, where you've got small business owners and, and whatnot who are, who are prosperous, but they're prosperous because they work hard and they provide services for people. Jesus says nothing negative about wealth. Somewhere, right. Bowyer makes the point that actually the issue there is more uh, ethnicity. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. kind of the uh, kind of it, what gets Jesus in trouble with the Galileans is when he starts talking about Gentiles uh, who were favored by God in old, you know, in old covenant times, right. like in Luke right. chapter four, they're about to write, you know, to run Jesus off a cliff because he's talking about these Gentiles that God has given his blessing to. And they don't like that. They, they want to maintain their racial and ethnic monopoly on God's blessing uh, right. as Jews. And so, so that's the issue there in Galilee. When he gets into Judea, the issue is wealth, which is, right. has maybe interesting parallels with certain things in our own day. There's a kind of xenophobia that characterizes the Galileans. Yeah. There's a love yeah. of wealth that characterizes the the Judeans, and that's what gets Jesus into into trouble. And of course, Bowyer even takes this all the way up to the crucifixion and shows that there were, historically speaking, economic reasons for Jesus' crucifixion because he was a threat to their uh, their way of life, to the yeah. status quo, to their they economy. The, they have control over the monetary system. You know, there's there's the the coin, the temple coin. You know, and and they. You know, if, if you are the one who prints the money, um, then you get to inflate it and distort it um, in, in unethical ways, for sure. Well, and the, the inflation issue was a huge one, the debasing of currency, you know, which, of course, is something, again, we're seeing in our own day. You know, one thing that, that I would I, I wonder if N.T. Wright has um, been given a copy of this book. 
Uh, Bowyer actually builds off of a lot of historical scholarship that N.T. Wright and other similar scholars, but I think especially Wright, uh, have done on the Gospels. You know, Wright's done some very good historical work on the Gospels. Problem with Wright is that while he is, you know, he comes to pretty conservative theological conclusions most of the time because he wants to stick close to the text of Scripture and he wants to situate it within its historical context, uh, he's really something of a social and economic progressive. Right. And Dowyer's book actually takes all the historical data, data that, that Wright doesn't include, that perhaps he hasn't been familiarized with, and comes to what I would consider a very conservative economic uh, conclusion. Yep. I would love for Wright to have to wrestle with it and deal oh, with the yeah. arguments that Bowyer makes, because the book's just outstanding. It is. I mean, the, the point of the book, if, if, if I mean, read it, but, but, um, but to me, the point of the book was Jesus has very harsh words for uh, crony capitalists. And, and so he's, he's coming that that's who are in his sites are people who want to use the, the arm of the state or the arm of the church to, to enrich themselves. Um, uh, and, and, and so, so many of the, um, the harsh words we see out of Jesus, uh, with respect to the rich are, are pointing back to that, to extorting you know, money from the poor, abusing the poor, um, and using the state uh, or the or the church uh, to to help you do that. Um, yeah. So, so let me, let me make one one more point here, and then we'll 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 move yeah. we'll kind of move to the next stage in our argument. But one one of the thing here is that uh, one of the ways we know that Jesus was not anti wealth per se. You know, he he attacks a certain kind of uh, again ill gotten gain. Uh, he attacks members of the ruling class who clearly are dominated by love of money and who are using the power of the state or the power of the temple to extract wealth more than they should from other people in ways that are unjust and oppressive. So Jesus certainly opposes those kind of uh, oppressive economic policies right. uh, and practices. Um, but we know that Jesus is not anti-wealth, not only because of passages like in Matthew 6, where he says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. And even in that same context, he talks about how extravagantly God has clothed the lilies, you know, that God's not a God of the bare minimum. He's a God of great extravagance and a God who loves yeah. beauty. And, and all. So should the lilies feel guilty because God has clothed them in such a... Uh, such an extravagant way. No, of course not. And he's right. comparing the lilies to Solomon, who was never clothed in such a glorious way. But he's not attacking Solomon for having wealth. He's actually making an analogy, you know, that, well, you think God gave a lot to Solomon. Well, God's even given more uh, beautiful clothing to the lilies of the field. So, so there's right. that whole element. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, you can't say that it has this simplistic view that is anti-wealth or that is promoting a poverty gospel or something like this. But when you get outside of the Sermon on the Mount, you got a lot of other things too. Jesus tells parables that come from an agrarian world, mm -hmm. which of course have to do with organic growth. But then right. he also has parables that come from the business world that have to do with economic growth. And in right. all of those parables consistently, the hero of the parable is the business owner who is prudent who gets a return on his investment. The man yeah. who is ambitious and entrepreneurial is the hero. Think about the parable of the talents. Mm -hmm. It's the one who increases his talents, who, who took the risk, who was ambitious, who was diligent, uh, who wanted to 
turn a profit, you could say, who is the, is the hero of the story. And that's set forth as a model for us. God has given us certain resources. He wants a return on his investment in us, which means we have to do something positive with it to make it grow. And again, right. there's all different kinds of ways to do that. Um, but economic growth is clearly seen as a good thing. Or the parable in uh, Matthew chapter 20 of the workers in the vineyard, where the owner of the vineyard, he's paying out the same wage to people who've worked different uh, you know, different schedules, some working more hours than others. And the owner of the, uh, of the, uh, of the land that, that, that's paying these workers, when he's challenged about that, he says, can I, can I not do with my own as I wish? Mm-hmm. Basically, Jesus is or, in, endorsing private property, their private ownership. And if you want to pay people different wages, uh, you know, if, if they've contractually agreed to that, then that, that's, that's fine. It's your money. You can do with it uh, as you see fit. So Jesus there gives an endorsement of, of you know, another pillar, you could say, of, uh, of a free market economy uh, in that he insists on the rights of ownership. Those rights may not be absolute in every single case, but it, it's the Eighth Commandment. In fact, what, what, a couple other things here that are interesting. Um, when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you, Jesus is putting wealth in a kingdom perspective. And one question we have to ask is, what is the kingdom? One right. of the reasons we need more Christian billionaires, which I want to get to in a few minutes, is because we need to fund kingdom projects and kingdom right. growth. Right. That, that's part of it. Um, and I think that's a really significant piece that I think a lot of times gets overlooked. In fact, let, let me go ahead and move into this. We'll go ahead and move yeah. into to something else I want to talk about here because the, 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 there's a demonization of wealth that has taken place in certain segments of the evangelical and reformed church that I think needs to be challenged. I'm thinking here of people like Ron Sider. Uh, Sider recently passed away, but he was, um, he, you know, he wrote a book back in the, I guess it was in the 80s. Uh, called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, that basically made the point, how can you be rich? You know, if you're an American Christian, generally speaking, you're rich by global standards. How can you continue to enjoy your riches and spend money on yourself and your kids and take vacations and have nice houses and cars and whatnot when there are people on the other side of the world who are starving? How can you justify being a rich Christian in an age of hunger? Now, there's a lot of problems with Sider's thesis. One is, again, not understanding how poverty actually works or why people are poor or how to address the problem in a long-term way. You know, again, this goes back to, um, I remember a while back people saying, oh, well, if, 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 if Elon Musk gave away all his wealth, he could end world hunger. And I was like, yeah, he could end world hunger for about 30 minutes. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> and then you'd actually have more hunger than you did before because all those people that used to work for Tesla and and, and Musk's other companies would now be poor themselves. Right. Uh, and once the you know once the money's gone, it's gone. He actually does far more good in terms of alleviating poverty by continuing to invest in and grow his businesses. And if that grows his wealth, well, good for him. But that also provides for a lot of other people. So there's this 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 failure to understand what causes poverty. Uh, there's a lot of potential causes of poverty. Obviously, if people are lazy, that that can lead to poverty. Proverbs talks about that. Different kinds of catastrophes or disasters can put even hardworking people in impoverished circumstances. But one thing that holds people in various parts of the world in poverty is the fact that they live in a society that does not have uh, certain things that we have, which, which we have as part of the legacy of Christendom in our culture, things like the rule of law, 
uh, and respect for private property and so forth. Um, De Soto, I think it's Hernando De Soto is his name. His his book on which is basically a defense of capitalism and, and a free market economy basically says. These so-called third world countries do not lack wealth. They're actually sitting on top of piles of wealth, but they don't have the kind of social framework in place that you need to be able to access that wealth and develop it. So the the problem is not a lack of resources. The problem is not that Western nations have taken those resources away. The problem is they don't have the kind of structure in place that you need, the kind of social structure in place, which really can only come through the gospel. That's why evangelism you know, of the nations is so important, the cultural transformation it brings. Those nations don't have in place the kind of social structures, the kind of social trust that you need to have. And, and in some cases, maybe not the work ethic either, but, but the things like the rule of law and that kind of thing, they don't have those things in place that would allow people to turn those raw materials into real tangible wealth. And, right. you know, that, that, that's a huge issue uh, in, in its own right. And uh, so, again, it goes back to understanding how wealth is actually created. The, the reason these nations are poor is, is not really outside oppression, generally. The, 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 the oil in the Middle East is a great example of this. That oil yeah. had been there for generations and, gener- you know, generations and generations and generations, and it was utterly worthless. You know, for generations, oil in the Middle East got in the way of things when you're trying to dig a well or something like that. It was a problem. Well, then people right. figured out what to do with it. And all of a sudden it becomes a very valuable resource. Right. It, the potential of oil having wealth was there all along, but that was not actualized until people got creative and innovative and worked at trying to figure out what they could do with it. And then all of a sudden right. this thing that was in the way becomes incredibly valuable. Think about the silicon that we used to make computer chips. Okay. Readily available all over the world. Uh, but it wasn't until people figured out that you could melt that silicon down, turn it into a computer chip, run electricity through it, and use it to do things like what we're doing here, that it really came to have value. So it was always there. The potential was always there. But right. it took people being ambitious and innovative and creative and basically wanting to improve life uh, in order to uh, give these resources that God built into the world value. And I'm sure there are all kinds of things in the world right now that we either don't pay any attention to, we ignore because we don't have any use for, or we think of as being in the way that future generations will convert into uh, incredible wealth. Yeah. So, so guys like Cider don't see this. They don't understand how wealth is created or where poverty comes from. They just say, look, if you're rich and they're hungry, then you're guilty. That's the problem. You've right. also got people like, say, David Platt. And, you know, my church is right down the street from where Platt used to pastor uh, here in Birmingham. Platt's book, Radical, was all the rage, you know, maybe around, I don't know, 2010, 2011, right in that uh, time frame. And I remember people reading that book and people coming away from that book feeling really guilty mm-hmm. for the things that they enjoy. And I remember one mom actually saying to me, how can I justify paying for piano lessons when there are unadopted orphans in other parts of the world and when there are people starving in other parts of the world? How can I pay for my son to okay. take piano lessons when I could put that money towards something else? And, and I said, look, you don't need to feel guilty. Uh, Platt, Platt's just wrong. There's, there, there's some things about the book I appreciate. I, I do appreciate that he attacks cheap grace and easy believism and those kinds of things. And I do appreciate that there's a certain version of the American dream that needs to be critiqued, which Platt does. But I think it's a very reductionistic view of 
the kingdom and of wealth and what wealth is for. So what, what Cider and Platt, and I, I think you could probably put somebody like John Piper, who seems very suspicious of wealth also in this category, you know, Piper with his, he's got sort of just this, you know, sort of, I'd say hyper pietism. What I would say they all have in common is they have all, they're all reductionistic about the Christian life. And therefore, they are reductionistic about the purposes and uses of wealth. When they hear Jesus say, seek first the kingdom of God, they think, oh, kingdom of God, that means saving souls from eternal damnation and hellfire. And that's kind of how Platt frames it, certainly. You know, basically, the money you're spending to air condition your house could have gone to missions. Okay, right. well, uh, there's more to the Christian, you know, the, the Christian's responsibility to the world is not just the Great Commission. It's actually the creation. It's actually the, the creation mandate or the cultural mandate. So right. it's not just sending out missionaries to save lost souls. It is ruling and subduing the earth, having dominion over the whole creation, building a God glorifying civilization. So I would say teaching your, you know, paying money for your son to learn to play piano may not be directly related to evangelism, but it is directly related to building the kingdom. Yeah. Uh, because that's a skill that can serve the kingdom. That, that's a skill that God cares about having preserved and developed in the world. That has value. Okay. Uh, so it doesn't, it doesn't, you don't have to weigh those things against each other. I could have given that money to missions. No, this has value in and of itself. It's a good thing. It's a, it, it can be a kingdom task, a kingdom activity. So if we see the Christian task as not just saving souls, but discipling nations, I mean, actually, I would say these guys actually reduce, it's not just that they ignore the creation mandate, but they actually reduce the Great Commission. The Great Commission yep. is not about saving souls. It's about discipling nations, which is a much bigger task. So when you, when you, when you see that, okay, now what are legitimate uses of wealth to further that task. Yep. And you see that actually there's, there's a whole lot more that we're put here to do. That's right. Yeah. I mean, if the, if, if the creation mandate is uh, to, to extend the garden, you know, to cover the entire planet and you know, we've got tons of work to do, we have to subdue the earth and, um, and that's not going to happen by sitting around and feeling, you know, feeling, um, a lot of emotion about the fact that some people don't have it as good as, as others, you know, it's, it's, um, and, and, and I think that, you know, I, when you talked about David Platt's book, you know, I, I, it reminds me of, and the guilt that, that it sort of leads people to, it reminds me very of, of Jesus's, you know, um, chastisement of the, of the Pharisees who tie up heavy burdens, um, and lay them on people's sh shoulders. And it comes back to that, that, Judas kind of, um, you know, a Judean elite kind of, uh, mindset of, Hey, let's, let's talk a big game about the importance of, of taking care of the poor and making people feel guilty and have them give us more money. And then we'll, 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 um, we'll do what we want with it and enrich ourselves. I think, uh, yeah. I think that book, Ron Sider's book, uh, rich Christians in an age of, of hunger, uh, prompted David Chilton to write his book. Productive. Yes. 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 I was going to mention that. Yeah. And yeah, I don't, yeah, that's I, what, yeah. I haven't read that book, but I've, I, I know that's been very influential. In, Fabulous book. Yeah. I, I'm trying to remember, yeah. I think it was on Jerry Boyer's podcast that I heard that book mentioned. He was interviewing somebody, which by the way, Jerry Boyer's got a really wonderful podcast. Um, you know, if you're, if you're interested in, in what he's up to, uh, check out his podcast. I think it's called, uh, the Meet meeting of the minds podcast. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, yeah, so so Cider wrote the book "Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger." Okay, so you can right. see where that's going. If you're rich and there are other people who are hungry, you're guilty. Okay. Yep. Uh, David Chilton wrote in response, "Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators." Okay, <laughs> perfect response, and it is an excellent book. I would recommend reading it. it it's it's just as relevant today as it was when it was written. Some of the statistics may be out of date, but the basic case he sets forth is exactly right. Productive Christians don't, don't need to be, be right. made to feel guilty. They don't need to be, uh, they don't need to allow themselves to be manipulated into feeling guilty for the fact right. that they do uh, enjoy some level of prosperity that other people don't. Now, with that prosperity comes certain responsibilities. Right. And this is one of the things that I addressed in my sermon. So I could, I could point people to, uh, to you know, the two sermons that I've, I've preached on wealth here recently right. uh, that, that, that deal with that, that do take up, you know, that issue of our responsibility. Uh, so there, there is that. Uh, but we need to think of that responsibility as much more than just helping poor people directly, you know, with direct handouts or funding missions in the narrow sense of, of, of sending missionaries to other places. There's a kingdom well, to build that we, right. we're, we're called to build Christendom and, and that's going to take right. money. And that means we need, we need uh, money to fund Christian institutions. We need money to fund Christian schools. We right. need uh, wealthy Christians who will uh, become patrons for Christian artists and Christian right. musicians. And one of the reasons we don't have very much Christian art is because Nobody funds it. There's no right. money for it. There's no money that's being poured right. into it. And I think the world is a is worse off because of that. So we need Christian billionaires. That brings me back to, to where mm. we started. We need Christian billionaires. We need Christian elites. That is Christians who have built up, say, lar large businesses by providing goods and services that consumers yeah. and investors value. And so therefore, who become very wealthy and who then will plow some of that money back into these types of Christendom yeah. Projects. I mean, the business itself is a wonderful thing because sure. it makes everybody's life better and it, it, it brings jobs to people and whatnot, but who also take some of those profits and plow them back. So, so think about this. Okay. We, I think we have very romantic notions of how cultural change works. A lot of times we, we, we want to think that we'd like to think that cultural change can happen from the bottom up. From the grassroots up, and there and there's an element in, in that, particularly in our society, where the little guy uh, and a grassroots organization can end up making a big difference. But generally speaking, it is the elites at the top who run things and who shape the direction of the culture, the society, the nation. And in our day, that means people like Jeff Bezos, George Soros, Bill Gates, uh, Elon Musk. Mark Zuckerberg, those are the people who shape our culture. They are the elites and they have a whole lot more say, a whole lot more power than any of us do. Yep. Uh, and of course, we could throw some politicians in the mix and that kind of thing too. But I think it's actually, these, these are the guys who really do more to shape the direction of the world than pretty much anybody else. So think about what George Soros has done. Okay, Soros is a sort of evil genius. Okay, Everything he does is diabolical, incredibly evil. Um, but he's also really good at, at being evil. He's good at being yeah. evil. Yeah, yeah, for uh, sure. And so, uh, for example, he figured out that, you know, I don't have to win every election. If I can just get the district attorney position, then anytime an arrest is made, even if the cops are doing their job, you know, even if people don't want to say defund the police, uh, I can just, I can just get 
district attorneys elected who are going to turn around and let those criminals right back out on the street. So you can riot in the city of Portland. The police can do their job and arrest you, and you're back rioting within 24 hours because the district, district attorney, a George Soros propped up candidate, uh, is you know is is going to let you go free because because of the cause you support. It's you know it's all about politics and power. It's not about justice. Uh, so so they have an incredible shaping influence. So we need Christian versions of George Soros who are just as good at what they do, but in a righteous way. We need the Christian Jeff Bezos. We need the Christian Bill Gates. Think about what Bill Gates has done. You know his whole vision of population control and dealing with climate change and those kinds of things. What about a Christian billionaire who was promoting large families and and promoting, um, you know, all kinds of things that would be uh, favorable to the family? Whereas sure. you know everything Bill Gates is is doing, you know, birth control, abortion, uh, you know, even wanting us to be on these, you know, this this just wretched diet that he's got planned for us all, where we eat bugs instead of meat to get our protein and that kind of thing. What about a Christian who, a Christian billionaire who says, no, feasting is good, and 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 the prophets described eating the best meats and drinking the best wine, and uh, and so what if we started to promote things that would lead more in that direction, right. um, and, and which I think is actually what most people, you know, normal people want anyway. Uh, so what, what, what about a, what about a, what about a, uh, a, a Christian billionaire who is working to make it so that families could have one breadwinner, you know, a man is the breadwinner and a, and a, and a woman who's able to stay home and raise children. Okay. Yeah. Since, I mean, that's, uh, you know, ideal in so many ways. And probably again, what, I don't know about a huge majority, but I mean, it seems anytime women get pulled about this, that's what most women seem to want uh, would be to have more time to spend with their kids at home and raising their kids and investing in their own families rather than, uh, you know, having to work to make ends meet. What about the fact that so much real estate is being bought up by these huge corporations uh, that, you know, the whole you'll own nothing and like it view, uh, which which I think really means we'll own nothing and be miserable, we'll own nothing and they'll like it, you know, our overlords who, are, who we become totally dependent upon. Um, right. So, uh, you know, what about billionaires, billionaire Christians who could influence things in a different direction than what we're seeing right now? Uh, right. That's what I would love to see. And of course, it doesn't yeah. have to just be Christian billionaires. Other, sure. other Christians can do this. I but one thing that is really interesting in scripture is that so many of the people that God uses to do great things actually are wealthy. They are part of an arist, you know, an aristocracy, yeah. but they, they live in a righteous way. They're, they are cultural elites who are righteous. And that yeah. to me, it seems is what we are lacking today. We have cultural elites who basically shape the world we live in, but they are wicked. What if we had cultural elites who are righteous? And so think about Abraham. Abraham was incredibly wealthy. Abraham had over, you know, over 300 fighting men at his disposal his traveling caravan had probably, you know, 1,000 to 2,000 people total in it, even though he didn't have many biological children himself. He's got this huge household. Uh, he's, in, he's, he's an ancient Middle Eastern sheik. He's a man of fabulous wealth and great means. Uh, yep. Boaz in the book of Ruth is described as a, as a mighty man of valor and a man of great means, a man of great substance. Uh, the right. way he's described at the beginning of Ruth 2, I think, describes his prowess on the battlefield and the fact that he is, you know, he's competent, he's got skills, but he's also got wealth to go with it. Mm -hmm. And he's a righteous man, and therefore he's in a position to help 
uh, Ruth and Naomi. Whereas if he was poor, he couldn't have done that. Uh, or think about Job. You know, Job was a was an Edomite king, incredibly wealthy, one of the godliest men to ever live, incredibly wealthy, loses everything. And of course, at the end of the story is given everything back that he lost and then some. He becomes, if he was wealthy before, now he's mega wealthy. If he right. was rich before, now he's ultra rich. Right. Uh, so, it, you know, just, and and he's obviously a very godly man. So you could go on and on. You know, Moses right. and Daniel uh, received, edu- you know, the, the best education available at the time in a pagan context, but mm-hmm. they managed to live faithfully through that. And they, they were men of power and wealth as well. So you could go on and on and on with these kinds of examples. And when you come to the New Testament, I think you have the same kind of thing. Joseph of Arimathea was very wealthy. Uh, Jesus never castigated him for his wealth mm-hmm. um, the way that he did other people because I think he came about his wealth in a different way, uh, presumably. Right. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul addresses the rich. So they are rich members of, of the church. And apparently after they have fulfilled all of their responsibilities and obligations to their own families and to the poor around them, they will still be rich. He doesn't tell them to divest themselves of all of their riches and bring themselves down to the level of everyone else. Uh, Even after they have laid up for themselves treasure in heaven, which he talks about there, echoing the Sermon on the Mount, laying for themselves a good foundation uh, in heaven, they're still going to be richer than pretty much everybody else. Uh, So they they will give, they will be generous, but they will still be wealthy. They'll still be in that 1% or what have you, however you want to describe it. So again, uh, this this is what, if we think not in terms of just saving souls, but in terms of Christendom, if we connect the Great Commission with the cultural mandate, then I think we can say, hey, look, there are all kinds of things that Christians need to be doing. We need Christian elites. We need Christians who are ultra wealthy, who will plant their money like seed, uh, mm-hmm. in the ground to grow and produce all of these Christian institutions and who will use their money in savvy ways to further Christian influence, uh, to, to, to basically make it possible for more people to embody Christian practices and Christian principles in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. I think the fear is, you know, the fear is that money will corrupt. Um, and, and I think what you said there and you, and you demonstrated so clearly throughout scripture is how many of the heroes of scripture were wealthy, um, and, and, it, and it comes back to how you acquire that wealth um, and, and whether or not you acquired it through a love of money or you acquired it through hard work, discipline, you know, virtue. Um, the, you know, the other image that comes to mind is I've, I've, I've heard the story of the prodigal son um, referred to as really the story of the prodigal father, that, that it's that the way that the father celebrates the returning of his son is, is completely extravagant. Um, and. Mm-hmm. And this is not a dad who is, um, you know, who, who is 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 sitting there waiting to chastise um, his son for for blowing his money. He actually blows more money when his son shows up with a big party. Um, one of the things I, I think, just kind of big picture, just to kind of bring it home, you you've said several times here, and kind of the 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 theme here is we need more Christian billionaires. I think a really wonderful a really wonderful example is we're talking about. Um, you know this this vision that you described as as really being about applying the creation mandate um, and building Christendom. Um, you know, I, I think about um, sanctuary cities. You know, I think about that's what our mission is in Hun- in Huntsville, Alabama. We are trying to turn Huntsville, Alabama into a sanctuary city um, for God's people. And um, and 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 by that, I'm I'm looking to to you know James Jordan's um, typological. 
you know, um, view of the church uh, being a, you know, a river of, of living water that's flowing yeah. out into the world yeah. and bringing, br- bringing, uh, you know, uh, beauty and, and goodness and, and uh, fruit, uh, you know, wherever it flows. Um, and, and when you look at, like, I look at Moscow, Idaho is an example, I think for a lot of us, they were just featured in an NBC you know, expose on on uh, the rise of Christian nationalism, um, and and you know what what um, I, if you follow Aaron Wren and the masculinist, um, he he's he gave a kind of his analysis of what's happening in Moscow a couple of years ago, and his um, his um, critique or or one of the things he pointed to as 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 um, being a, missing in their strategy early on was economic activity is that their their mission they are a very very productive hardworking group of people who have been who have been faithfully laboring for for a couple generations now um, their their efforts were really hindered by the fact that they were behind the eight ball on economic growth and and that's finally catching up I, I just got back from a visit to Moscow and was really delighted to find that all of my best friends that I went to college with and, and, and hung out with when we were young are all now business owners in, in Moscow. And they, they all have businesses up and down Main Street and are employing lots of people. Um, and, and economic activity, you know, the term intercourse, you know, we, we think of it in a sexual way, but the historic kind of term of intercourse is really about, is really about the fact that you know, it, it's an economic term and, and the fact that when you're doing business with people, you have to make friends with people and make alliances and, and there's a covenantal component to economic activity that actually in God's goodness binds people together. You know, it, it, it creates a more robust Christendom, a more robust Christian community um, than you have in a place where Christianity is simply something you can download off of a video screen on Sunday mornings. You know, when you're actually doing, you know, living life, doing business, serving one another, um, and depending on one another economically, it really has a, has a, a an amazing power to, uh, to knit a community together. So, so I think your, your point about, uh, you know, Christian billionaires really is, is, is well taken that, that we need, I, I think of them as guardian angels. You know, I think, I think every city needs to have guardian angel, you know, Christians who, who have, like you're, you, you've referred to them as elites, you know, but, but who have influence by sheer virtue of the number of people in the city who work for them, you know, the number of people in the city who, who depend on them uh, as investors, as bosses, as, you know, as donors. Um, we need more of those kind of guardian angels, uh, Christian guardian angels in our cities. Right. Right. Yeah, you, you're exactly right. Uh, you know, in that in that recent uh, was it Meet the Press or something? I don't remember what yeah. the name of the show was. Some I think it's an NBC show that they they did something on Moscow. It was interesting. You know, it seems like the great offense is that the the, the Christians in Moscow there. Uh, Doug Wilson, the pastor in his church, seems their big offense is that they want to make Moscow a Christian city. And of course, there's all kinds of misconceptions about that. They basically said, oh, these people have chosen power over democracy. Well, give me one example of where they actually chose power over democracy. I mean, they've run candidates for office and lost. And what did they do? I mean, they accepted defeat. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's just absurd that the claims that are made or the idea that, uh, you know, that there's going to be, you know, maybe, you um, 
uh, you know, evangelism at the point of a sword or something like that. They haven't done anything like that. They, yeah. they seek to reason and persuade people and, you know, they've been, you know, effective, but not as effective as they wish they could be. But there's they're, 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 none, of their, none of the things that they uh, sort of scaremongered about on that uh, right. news episode are things that have actually happened. They, they have not engaged in any kind of violent behavior or anything like that. So right. uh, it's, it's just all lies. It's, it's accusations that come when well, we right. know where they come from. Satan's so always I'm gonna, righteous and being wicked and of doing things that wicked people do. Right. Um, but, 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 but I think that the offense, it seems, is that they want a Christian town. Well, look, the reality is we don't want just Christian towns. We want Christian states. We want Christian nations. We want a Christian planet. And we'll be satisfied with nothing less because God has commanded that and God has promised that. That's right. No question about it, that, that, that every nation is to be a Christocracy, because really Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords already. What we're seeking to do is to have that fact about the world to be acknowledged and implemented in how people actually live their lives. Okay. Uh, that, that Christ would be acknowledged for the king that he already is, that Christ would be acknowledged as Lord since he already is Lord. So, right. uh, yeah, that, that's really, really good. I want to I want to close this out, Lars, because I know we're about out of time. Got a minute. I'll, you know, the, the, the minute always turns into 50 or 60 minutes. But um, I want to go back to a couple things we talked about already and just kind of tie up some loose ends. Okay. Right. One is Jesus' view of wealth. We talked about the Bowyer book. I think that's super yep. helpful. There are people today who say, well, obviously Jesus would have been in favor of, say, you know, canceling uh, student loans. Okay. And doesn't the right. Old Testament have a Jubilee law where, uh, where, where debts would be canceled? Well, here's sure. the thing. Um, it is, you know, there is a Jubilee law. Now, that was always factored in, you know, to any economic transaction. If you went into debt, everybody involved in the transaction knew that you were going to, that the debt would be canceled in the seventh right. year, 50th year, you know. Um, well, that would that would affect uh, the way in which that debt was handled. With, with, with something like the student loan crisis, uh, and I do think it's a crisis, um, because it, it is hindering so many people um, who made a bad financial decision when they were young. Right. Uh, and, it, and it's in many ways crippled them economically, you know, for the rest of their lives. Um, I've heard a lot of people say, well, this is predatory lending and that's why it should be canceled. Well, if these, if these are predatory loans and let's stop making them. Okay. And of course it's, it's the fact that the government's flooded the, the, the marketplace, so to speak, with these cheap loans that has inflated the price of college to begin with. Absolutely. Uh, and I do think there's a fairness issue that many people have brought out. If you cancel the loans for this, what do you do for the people who worked their way through college or the people who yeah. chose not to go to college because they couldn't afford it and who went to trade school instead? What are you going to do? For, you know, just It just creates all kinds of issues. Um, I don't think it's necessarily wrong for somebody to take a benefit if it's offered like that. I'm not, I'm not sure. saying if, you know, if the government offers to cancel $10,000 of your student debt, you shouldn't take it. I think that's fine to take it. But I think you should recognize there's something unjust about this. It's not going to be helpful to our society or our economy in the long run to do this. Uh, yep. It's very problematic. Christians are people who pay their debts. You know, we're, we're Christians. You know, that, that's something Scripture is clear about, too, that, that uh, Christians are people who pay their debts. But, um, you know, so there's a lot of debate about things like this. OK, the student loan thing is one thing. Uh, all kinds of other socialist programs, like another one that you'll hear trotted out. And this one sometimes comes from Republicans, too, is, well, we need uh, government funded uh, daycare so that women can get back to work more quickly. 
Well, let's step back and ask, okay, is that really best for everybody? Is that best for, for mom? Is that best for the, for the child? Young children want to be with their moms all the time for a reason. Right. And a woman's biology tells her that she should be and needs to be, you know, right. with her child uh, as right. much as possible. So, uh, and I would point people to Eric Commissar's work uh, on you know, her book, Being There, on the importance mm-hmm. of motherhood, especially during those early years of life. Uh, so again, here's a here's a policy that people think, oh, this sounds so good, but really, and of course, it's a you know, sort of a socialist thing, but it's it's a really bad idea actually in practice. Mm-hmm. But there are people who want to connect Jesus with socialism. They view Jesus as sort of a first century Bernie Sanders or first century um, Fidel Castro or something like that. Uh, and, and I think we've shown that that's not the case. But I want to go back to Bowyer's thesis because I think there's something that, that else is important there that we. We, we need to understand because it can help us see what's going on. Why are the two, you know, so, so again, think about what Bowyer has, has made a very compelling case for, that when Jesus is in Galilee, he does not attack wealth. When he gets to Judea, he does, because that's where the takers are, the people who are extracting wealth from others by force. Mm-hmm. Why is it that in the United States, the two wealthiest counties, or two of the counties that are at the very, towards the very top of wealth, are Fairfax County, Virginia, and Montgomery County, Maryland. Those are the two counties that straddle Washington, D.C. Why are those the two wealthiest counties, or two of the counties that are among the wealthiest? Right. I think it's largely because the American taxpayer is a chump who's being taken advantage of. Uh, the people who have the power to extract the most wealth are right there. And I'm not saying that everybody involved in politics in D.C. is corrupt, far from it. I'm not saying all wealthy people who live in Fairfax or Montgomery County is corrupt. And I'm not saying that at all. But there is a reason why those counties are so wealthy, and it has to do with the fact that they have a monopoly on wealth extraction, basically. Those are the Judeans of our day. That's where the Judas economy is in our day. Jesus is not promoting socialism in his attacks on wealth, he's actually attacking the socialists, okay? Uh, And that's really important to understand. Jesus is not arguing for socialist, he's not promoting socialist policies with his attack on wealth. He's actually attacking those who would implement the socialist policies and benefit from the socialist policies and run the socialist policies. Uh, And again, that goes back to the whole Judas economy thing. So it's really the, you got to draw the opposite conclusion if you really look at the data. Jesus is not a a socialist. He's an anti-socialist. He's he's very leery of those who would run this kind of system of the government bureaucrats who would enrich themselves. And there's so much corruption in the system. And of course, once once a welfare system or some kind of government bureaucracy is set up, it does everything it can to perpetuate itself and to expand itself. That's right. Uh, which means it's got to take more and more money out of the system. And again, all the waste and, and all of that, it's just, uh, there's a lot of corruption involved in that. So Jesus is not promoting socialism. I would argue he's actually attacking it. That I think is something that's very, very important to, to understand. Uh, and, 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 you know, insofar as, you know, and, and you made this point, Larson, Bowyer's really attacking cronyism. That was really the issue, you know, the backroom deals and whatnot. How is it that ordinary people with basically ordinary levels of wealth can go to Washington, D.C. as, say, a congressman, and then in a very short period of time, say, you know, five, six, ten years later, be fabulously wealthy? How does that happen? Their jobs don't pay that much. 
you know, so how do they become so fabulously wealthy? Well, there's a lot of, uh, obviously, I mean, when you're sitting on a congressional committee that's going to determine the policy for these corporations out here, you're basically getting to pick winners and losers. And, you know, I think everybody can see the corruption that, that goes on, but nobody can really do anything about it. Um, but you basically are, you basically have a situation where the government can pick winners and losers. Congressmen tend to get that information before anybody else and can invest accordingly. You know, it's not that Paul Pelosi is a better stock picker than the rest of us. It's that he's got information the rest of us don't have through his right. wife, Nancy. Right. Uh, and that just happens again and again. So I think we just have to recognize there is a lot of corruption there. And, and that's something we need to just be aware of and recognize. And of course, I'm not saying the answer is for Christians to jump in and do that. When I say we need Christian elites, we need Christians who are at the top, but who are, right. who got there in a righteous way and who you, who use their wealth in a righteous way when they get there. So they, you know, right. you very much need to be above reproach. Uh, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to do the kind of things we're talking about. One other thing I want to point out, and this is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the, the Shorter Catechism on the Eighth Commandment says what is required in the Eighth Commandment. And this is the answer they give. The Eighth Commandment requires the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. Now, of course, the Eighth Commandment also forbids, you know, if you go to what it forbids, it forbids stealing. Uh, it forbids anything that would um, take away from the outward estate of others. You know, so that's, that's, that's um, you know, there uh, as well. But th the answer to this question is really interesting. In order to fulfill the, the positive side of the Eighth Commandment, you have to increase your own wealth and do things that would increase your neighbor's wealth. A couple of things about that stand out to me. One is what Paul says in Ephesians 4, stop stealing, start working to provide right. for yourself. And also so you have something to share. Okay. Yeah. So the purpose of our work is certainly to provide for our own needs, but we need to be so productive. We yeah. need to be so ambitious in how productive we are that we have something to share with others. We're not tempted to steal because we provided for our own needs. And we have something left over that we can share with other people. Um, so when Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive, I think in a way you could say what he's getting at is it's more blessed to produce than to consume. Yeah. If we're going to fill these, fulfill these commands about generosity and scripture, we have to be incredibly productive. And yeah. that means ambitious, innovative, even risk taking at times. Uh, we have to be uh, very productive. We have an obligation to further our own wealth and outward estate, but also the catechism says that of our neighbors. And this is so important. A healthy economy is not a zero sum game where if I get rich, it comes at your expense. You can actually have a rising tide that lifts all boats. I can get rich and you can get rich. We, 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 can, we can both be increasing our outward estate uh, at the same time. This is before Adam Smith, you know, the, and, and the, the Westminster divines have already figured this out, that the economy is not a zero sum game. You can have an economy where it's not just how are we going to divide up the pie here, the pieces of the pie, but the pie itself can be growing larger. So everybody's piece is getting bigger. Some may get a larger piece than others still that you're not going to do away with that kind of inequality, but we can all be uh, better off than we were before. The economy can can grow. Uh, yeah. And that that's a that's a very important insight because yeah. uh, so much of our economic thinking, so much economic thinking today goes wrong because it thinks of the economy as a zero sum game and it does not have to be that way. Yep. Yeah, that's that's probably the thing if you're listening and this is a new conversation to you, that's probably the biggest takeaway um, is 
is the the lie that gives um, that gives all of the communist arguments, all the anti wealth arguments, the most force is the lie that that uh, ec- that economic activity is a zero sum game. That in order to gain wealth, you have to take wealth from somebody else, and that's just that's just not true. You know, it's 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 this amazing miracle that God's built into the world that as you work, as you're productive, you it's almost like you know, creatio, creatio ex nihilo in a way. I mean, it's it's a way of being sub-creators under God. You are, with your own hands, you are creating value that didn't exist before. Um, and, uh, and and it's more value, you know, by, by nature of it, you know, if somebody's hiring you um, to work and it's solving a problem for them and it's solving a problem for you and your family, you, you know, by the nature of it, it's, it's multiplying as, as you're doing it, you know, the, the wealth, that's, that's, right. that's, that's right. Stored potential in your, in your, um, in your hands is multiplied as you work. Um, so right. it's, it's a beautiful thing, uh, but it's a, it's a really pervasive and a subtle, um, lie that is, that is snuck into uh, all, all manner of things. So if you, if you reject that lie, then, then a lot of other things are going to start to, to make sense. Yeah, it's the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. God has given all of us talents, which you can just think of that as resources, and God wants us to give him a return on investment. Well, if everybody's giving God a return on the investment that he's made with them, then yes, there's going to be more wealth in the end than there was in the beginning. I think God filled his world with potential wealth. It's up to us to actualize it. Yeah. And again, that that so human labor uh, is, is necessary to that human work as part of that, uh, innovation, uh, entrepreneurship. I mean, all of those kinds of things, it, it, it ambition, it, there's a, there's a, obviously there's a kind of selfish ambition that we want to avoid, but there's a kind of godly ambition. Uh, again, the eighth commandment, according to the Westminster divines requires furthering your outward estate, uh, which doesn't mean, you know, seeking after get rich quick schemes, the Bible right. warns about that, but working hard, being diligent, working smart, uh, being wise, creative, innovative, seeking to, how do people make a profit in a market economy by serving their customers better at a, yeah. at a lower price? That yeah. that's how you win in a market economy. There's a competition to see who can serve the best. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I know a lot of times the market economy has been castigated as, uh, being driven by greed. And there are people who are driven by greed. And, you know, in the sure. 1980s, you know, the movie line, greed is good. But the reality is one of the beautiful things about the market is that it can harness even people's greedy. Because even if I'm really greedy, even if I just want to make as much money as possible, I still have to produce something people want at a price they will, that, that, they'll, that they'll pay uh, in order to get ahead. So I can do that out of greed or I can do that out of love for my neighbor. And obviously we should do it out of love. Um, but in a, in a market economy, there's a sense in which even even greed can be harnessed, right. uh, and and you can, in a sense, um, require people to be virtuous and thinking of others uh, in right. order to to make it. Uh, well, so, again, to 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 Bowyer's point and to to Jesus's point, I mean, the the place where this all goes wrong is when is when that that free market um, economic system. Um, that that I would say is just baked into the world that God made is yeah. is um, is captured by by uh, by the government or by the church or by other you know entities who um, who take money you know from from taxpayers or whoever it is that 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 didn't willfully give it you know and and redistribute that to 
to their friends. Um, and that, that's yeah. where the thing gets, that's where the yeah. thing gets off the rails and, yeah. and is no they're, longer. They're yeah. They're, they're legitimate uses of, of taxation. It's, I don't believe all taxation is theft. Uh, but I, I, I do believe the big problem we have today, which is the antithesis of a market economy really is cronyism. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's people who game the system. Um, and, uh, and we've, and, and that's exactly the kind of thing that Jesus is dealing with when he attacks the wealthy in Judea, uh, in the gospels is their cronyism. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what we see going on in our day. And so that, that, that's, again, I'm not saying that, I mean, obviously anybody can, can love money and, uh, fall into that trap. Uh, so it's not, I don't think, I don't think the fact that Jesus warnings about wealth come in Judea means nobody in Galilee was sinning. Uh, in, in an economic way or loving money or whatnot. Just talking about where the problem is concentrated. And in our culture, I think that's really where you see it. And that's something we got to deal with. And I, I, and I think, you know, because there's been so much bad rhetoric that surrounds this, that demonizes the, the, the wealthy and, and their wealth, that's where I think we need to come back. And that's what we're trying to correct here today is, is say to Christians, basically, no, look, pursuing wealth can be a very godly endeavor. And there are lots of godly, wealthy people in scripture. And that can actually be a sign, not only that God has blessed you, it can be a sign that you're serving people well and that you're improving other people's lives. And that's why you're getting richer yourself. And now think of your wealth, you know, use your wealth in such a way that it's obvious you're seeking first the kingdom of God. Yeah. Using your wealth in a kingdom way as a kingdom steward, giving God a return on his investment. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being rich. You don't need to feel guilty or ashamed of that. You don't need to hide that. Uh, but you do need to take responsibility for it. And that means using your money in kingdom purposes, for kingdom purposes and in kingdom ways. Yeah. Well, Rich, I think this is clearly a topic that has another couple episodes worth of material in it that I think both of us are sitting on another 20 things we want to talk about related to it. So we're going to have to, uh, we'll have to do maybe a part two of this. Um, if you're uh, listening, we'd love to hear your feedback. Um, you know, shoot us a, shoot us a note or leave us a comment, um, wherever it is you're listening to this. We'd love to engage with uh, your thoughts and appreciate your, uh, your, uh, hanging out with, with Rich and I, as we talk about, uh, wealth today, Rich, it was good. Appreciate it, yeah. Thank yeah, you. Looking forward to the next one. Sounds good. All right. Take care. See ya.